0: Welcome back to The Re-Education. Today's show delves into the history of academics and activists who claim free expression can be a kind of violence, and why this conceit endangers the very democracy these voices are now trying to protect. My guest is the very talented Damon Linker, the founder of the Eyes on the Right Substack and a former columnist at The Week.
1: So this was never
2: targeted at conservative Republicans. Uh, this was targeted to a group of 600,000 people because of the people who followed them. And then you determined that wasn't fair, and you corrected that practice. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. So just, just for the record, uh, since you've been singled out as a social media platform before this committee, uh, Twitter undertook no behavior to selectively censor conservative Republicans or conservative
0: voices on your platform. Is that correct? Correct. Good. So let the record reflect that because that's the whole reason supposedly we're here. Because House Leader Kevin McCarthy wrote our chairman a letter and said, hey, this is going on and we think your committee should investigate
2: it. And it's a load of crap.
0: We just heard a snippet from a hearing from 2018 in the House of Representatives where then Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey was asked about shadow banning of prominent conservatives. Shadow banning, if you don't know, is a kind of de-amplification of a Twitter account, or for that matter, a Facebook account, so that more people can't necessarily find it. And at least when you're talking about political discourse, it's a very big deal. Anyway, Mr. Dorsey said something that he and other Twitter senior executives have been saying now for more than four years. We don't do it. And when steps are taken... To deamplify tweets, no political consideration is ever made. Well, folks, there's no nice way of saying it, but that is a lie. And that lie has just been exposed this week. Barry Weiss, friend of the show, in the second installment of the Twitter files, exposed how Twitter placed several prominent right of center accounts on blacklists aimed at restricting the reach of their tweets, even when it was unclear that they violated whatever rules it was that they were being blacklisted for. For example, Libs of TikTok had its account suspended time and again, even as moderators inside of Twitter said, at least in terms of these internal chats, that the proprietor of that account had not violated the company's hateful conduct policies and other sorts of things. Other accounts, such as the one belonging to Dan Bongino, a popular right-wing talk show host and news personality, were placed on what are known as search ban lists. So if someone would search to find that account in Twitter, it really wouldn't show up. Pretty sneaky and devious stuff here. Now, we could do an entire show on the revelations thus far of the Twitter files, where Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi were given access to internal Twitter files by the new CEO, Elon Musk. But in this show, I want to focus on a recent evolution at the social media companies to expand the wide range of speech that it has empowered itself to moderate online. Because this didn't just happen in a vacuum. Twitter, Facebook, and Google, the companies that own the digital town square today, were started by free speech enthusiasts. And yet over time, the companies caved to an industry that considers unfettered speech to be a danger to the democracy they purport to defend. We've covered some of this before. Listen to my episode on Musk's takeover of Twitter, Freebird. And one of our first episodes on this, the topic of disinformation with the terrific Christine Rosen. And just to recap, Eli Lake of the Reeducation is not arguing that there should be no rules for moderating content. There is all kinds of speech that is illegal, such as incitement to violence or not necessarily illegal, but certainly bad pornography, certainly child pornography doxing individuals. There's all kinds of reasons to moderate speech. It's not a simple either or. However, it's gotten out of control. And also, as I think the Twitter file's recent reporting has shown, it's also been biased. So the enforcement of the new rules has not been neutral. And there have been like a proliferation of new kinds of speech that would be moderated, including on the issues of misinformation and disinformation. But today we are focusing on a subset of this problem, which is the sort of new industry of academics and activists and sadly even journalists, who, as one of my mentors, Christopher Hitchens, would say, are fashioning a rod for their own backs, like the NBC disinformation team, and that they all seem to believe that there is a lot of online speech that's no different than violence.
1: What happened in Colorado Springs this weekend is not senseless. People call it senseless violence. It's not It was bound to happen, it's bound to happen in a world where our political leaders um, legitimize hate and violence, where too many faith leaders add to this message by marginalizing people in their congregations and influencers are encouraging hate and active violence against our community. We saw it at Pulse six years ago, we saw it with that with what's happening at Boston Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt and at Yale and other healthcare facilities and clinics that are providing gender affirming care. Death threats against staff and promises of attacks on facilities are the norm now. We saw it at the donor shop in Tulsa, where just announcement of hosting a drag show led to um, violence from an arsonist. We see it when libs of TikTok advances hating conspiracy theories and directs people to where LGBTQ people can be found and harmed. This stochastic terrorism, and if you don't know what that means, we're going to be talking about that, Um, It's real and it has real results. And we just saw what that looks like.
0: So we just heard from Jean-Marie Nevada, the director of learning and inclusion at PFLAG, which is an organization that supports the families of LGBTQI plus community. And she's reacting to the horror last month at Colorado Springs when a non-binary gunman shot up and conducted a massacre at Club Q in that town of Colorado Springs, killing five people and injuring another 25. Terrible, terrible story. at the end of her soliloquy, she mentions this idea of, quote, stochastic terrorism, end quote. It's a fairly new concept, and it's generally meant to mean that the demonization of an individual or a group of, of people, usually on social media, will lead others who absorb this information to conduct violence against the target. This is distinct, I should say, from the idea of incitement, which has its own troubled history as a concept in liberal democracies. But this is a kind of a new thing. Because in the case of incitement, the speaker has to literally call for violence or lay out a roadmap in that moment to conduct violence. The classic case here is what's known as the Brandenburg test. Brandenburg was a Ku Klux Klan leader, and ultimately the Supreme Court ruled that efforts to prosecute him for incitement of violence did not pass this sort of test that he had to do a lot of things in the moment to gin up a crowd to get them to have sort of blood in their eye and to gin them up and conduct violence. And it's a very important thing. It's a huge issue when it comes to First Amendment law and the concept of free speech. And we might do a Brandenburg episode later on, but I wanted to mention that, that we're not talking about incitement. This is something different. So stochastic terrorism obviously is a lot murkier. So for example, Ms. Nevada claimed that the account libs of TikTok is guilty of a kind of stochastic terrorism because that account features Basically, clips of other people on TikTok usually spouting outrageous gender theories, often in the context of maybe teaching young children, and they exist. And it just sort of says, hey, look at this. And the argument is that this sort of thing would radicalize the shooter at Club Q. Another example, by the way, that she mentions later on is Matt Walsh, the Daily Caller, host and journalist and and writer who made this What is a Woman documentary. And anyway, my point is whether you agree or you disagree with their tactics, this is a live debate in America right now when it comes to trans issues and gender ideology. And I'm going to get to this in a minute, but it's, it's really hard to say that a Twitter account that just basically reposts TikTok videos that the users themselves put out in a public forum should be treated as if they were conducting a kind of basically incitement. And I should say that Ms. Nevada here is not alone, not by any stretch. She is expressing a new kind of consensus for the. People entrusted with such nebulous concepts as online safety. Here is Alejandro Caraballo. She works at Harvard Law School's Cyber Law Clinic and recently told the Washington Post that Elon Musk's loosening of Twitter's content moderation policies is, quote, existentially dangerous for marginalized communities. It's like opening the gates of hell, end quote. And here's Juliet Kayam, another Harvard professor and former assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security, and she told the Washington Post in a different piece, quote, the idea that there's no difference between online chatter and real world harm is disabused by a decade of research, end of quote. Okay, so with all these experts assuring us that there are reams of studies and data that confirm their view that some online speech leads to violence. It's easy to just defer to the experts. I am not a social scientist. I don't have time to read through all these papers. I haven't done any research. Okay, fine. But at the same time, I would ask my audience, please remember that we have been here before. Every now and again, you will find this, at least in sort of the modern American history, at least in, in other forms throughout American history, that there will be academics and activists, sometimes journalists too, sadly, that get together to blame some kind of mass media content or, or free expression in, for a rise in real-world violence. And at least historically, and I would say currently too, these claims have been exposed as academic flim-flam.
3: It is concluded that childhood exposure to television is a causal factor behind approximately one-half of violent acts committed in the United States. Manifestly, every violent act is the result of an array of forces coming together, poverty, crime, intoxication, stress, conflict, of which exposure to television is just one. Nevertheless, the epidemiologic evidence indicates that if, hypothetically, television technology had never been developed, there would today be 10,000 fewer homicides each year in the United States, 70,000 fewer rapes, and 700,000 fewer injurious assaults. This is why a violence blocking system in all new television sets is such an excellent idea and why legislation should be passed to make it so.
0: So this guy who you just heard telling the U.S. Senate in 1993 that America's increase in violent crime was because of violence on television and claiming preposterously that had television never been introduced in America, there would be some sort of precipitous drop in crimes that you could quantify is a largely forgotten academic by the name of Brandon Centerwall, and for a few years, in like the 80s and the 90s, he was taken very seriously. At this hearing, he was making the case for the V-chip, which would allow the owner of a television set to block out programs that show more violence than the viewer would like to see. Anyway, he was testifying before a 1993 Senate hearing on violence in television, and it was his contention that the introduction of television into American life in the 1950s was responsible for rising crime rates in the 1970s and 80s. I am not making this up. Basically saying that, you know, kids who watched Howdy Doody or The Honeymooners or I Love Lucy, a number of them, that would sort of factor into the whatever stew that made up their personality and mind, that by the time they become young men, usually as it is men, they would become sociopaths, basically. Now, We all know that today this kind of research is clearly trash. And let me explain why Dr. Seneral was totally wrong. The crime rate in America actually began declining at the time of this hearing. Maybe not 1993, but certainly throughout the 90s. And it really didn't spike until 2020. So you had this long period where violent crime rates were going down. And yet in the same period, movies, television, video games became even more violent. And I want to quote here former and future re education guest Nick Gillespie, who wrote back in 1996 for Reason Magazine. And I want to quote this The audience has a mind of its own. Individuals sitting in a theater or watching television or listening to a CD don't always see and hear things the way they are, quote, supposed to, end of quote. It's a really important point, but all of this idea that the culture or the, the content or something that's out there that is getting out to people and we'll get to this in my current context, is turning people who would otherwise be, you know, peaceful citizens into walking time bombs. It almost relies on a distorted notion of the tabula rasa concept, which John Locke used to explain how the human mind works, which is sort of filled with experience and knowledge over time. But it's sort of saying that everybody out there The masses, all these sort of like, you know, sponges with no ability to understand what they're listening to. And it sort of works the way, I don't know, advertisers believe that advertising always works on us. And it's just not true because how we consume culture, whether it's social media or video games or movies or television shows, is a lot more complicated. And the person who's consuming it has a role in all of this. And they're not just sort of a sponge that can be programmed. Okay, so this does bring things back to the present. The internet is a big place, and it's always possible that a sociopath will watch a television show, play a video game, or read a tweet that in his twisted mind will spur him to commit a violent crime. That's not the fault of the television network, it's not the fault of the video game maker, and it's certainly not the fault of the tweeter or the person who posted something online. And as soon as we say that it is, as soon as we sort of allied this distinction between the thing in the culture and what the person who created it and what someone claims that they do with it, well, then you know what? Free speech is over because discourse in a democratic society depends on the distinction between words and violence. It's something that the content moderators just fired from Twitter have either never learned or are now simply ignoring. So we got to be vigilant here, folks, because for those of us who believe that free speech is worth defending, we should know our enemies today The censors do not come in the form of uptight scolds warning about the depravity of rap lyrics or the horror that awaits one who buys a copy of Hustler magazine. Today, the censors are among our most progressive and educated citizens. And in the name of protecting the most marginalized, they insist that legitimate debate be throttled or banned. What these well-intentioned censors do not understand is that safety achieved at the expense of free expression is just a fancy way of stifling debate altogether.
2: I got something
0: everybody. We are really lucky today to have Damon Linker, who is the author of the Substack newsletter Eyes on the Right. I recommend it. It's always interesting, even when I don't always necessarily agree with everything. Longtime columnist. He's been an editor. We both worked at the Daily Beast. We've both written for The New Republic. Damon, thank you so much for coming on The Re-Education. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for
2: having me on. It's great to be here.
0: All right. Well, listen, let's start and we don't have to spend. Well, you know, let's just start on what is being dubbed, I guess, as the Twitter files. And I want, I don't want to really get into whether, oh, we knew it already or whatever, but what's your general takeaway as we revisit two years later, you could say this first installment of the, of Taibbi's, I guess we would call it investigative Twitter thread. I mean, it's it's (laughs) like an article, but it's on Twitter thread anyway, but, You know, it revisits this episode of what I think was a panic about a New York Post story based on files gleaned from a laptop that belonged to Hunter Biden. And we we kind of get a look inside and how the sausage is made because, you know, he has the emails and internal messages from all these senior people who used to worked until about a month ago at Twitter but what? So, what was your impression of that? That's, I guess, my 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 question. Like, what, what do you think it it means? What do we think two years after this happened?
2: Well, as is often the case with me, it's sort of a muddled response. I mean, sure. uh, for one thing, I think the whole way. I mean, it's still ongoing, as you say. Like, there's more to come, and they've sort of they sort of teased that it would be the the next day because this all took place Friday evening, early evening. And, and at first Elon Musk said well there'll be more tomorrow and then it was delayed and then delayed some more so who knows when the rest and, of and, and Barry will
0: drop. Weiss has got them too mm-hmm. and like where, where 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 where's my next installment of the Twitter files?
2: yeah yeah <laughs> I didn't even know that Barry's situation had very much of a Twitter angle I thought that was mostly a kind of internal New York Times thing but apparently you know maybe they have emails between New no, York no, no, Times she, was, she people. was
0: given access to the files as well as. Type, oh oh meaning type.
2: so maybe maybe her substack right. will, you know, have bits of it too. Okay. Well, so first of all, the whole way this is being put out there is a little peculiar. I mean, Elon Musk owns Twitter. He can make anything public he wants at any time in any fashion he wants. And instead of simply releasing a huge tranche of documents and letting other journalists at all kinds of outlets look into it he's in, he's instead handed it to taibi who has made his own kind of unclear statements about exactly what's going on here like oh i've been traveling all over the place and and i had to you know agree to not reveal everything and and then he releases it in a twitter thread written not ahead of time so it all kind of drops in order but like in real times so of five, ten minutes between tweets, it was kind of an odd thing, and I and of course, hi, uh, you know, Musk is also hyping it. He's doing popcorn emojis about how this yeah. is going to be some huge thing, and then he says, "If this isn't a violation of the First Amendment, I don't know what is," and that's at the very least a contestable claim. So it's it's a little bit like <clears throat> I feel a little bit like I was watching on Friday evening when this when this happened, you know, I, I kind of uh, a shell game con man in in the old uh, the old Times Square, like, hey, come on in here. Let's play this game. Like there was a, something a little shifty. It reminded me I don't want to go too far with the Trump analogies, but there was a little a little bit of kind of flimflam artist Trumpiness to this, like boosting himself and 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 I I don't think that that really helps the conversation in any way. Then on a little bit more of a substantive level, my view on the whole Hunter Biden laptop issue is is, again, pretty muddled at the time I was inclined to sort of defer to Twitter in and not promoting the story i then became a little uncomfortable when they actually kind of banned the the new york post twitter account which seemed egregious yeah. i didn't know what I was going was on happening. there yeah. But you know, I, I did remember 2016, the WikiLeaks, you know, stealing of of things from the DNC server, and then and then doling them out in order to harm the Democrats against Trump that year, and so I, I was inclined to be empathetic to the The Twitter powers that be at not wanting to kind of get hoodwinked again because the provenance of the laptop and how it got to the New York post was was odd, to say the
0: least. I, I mean, agree you had... with you. I thought the initial story was so strange that I wrote like this this came out as I was finishing like a huge commentary essay on the entire Russiagate affair. And I thought this is like kind of an interesting analogy. Because on the one hand, I was like, this doesn't add up. There's something else that's here. And yet we seem to have real information on Hunter's efforts to trade on his father's name and influence. So it's like two things can be true. We're not being told the whole story. That's what I thought at the time of how this laptop came into the hands of the New York Post. Yet at the same time, what is revealed is, is, in my view, wasn't like some political kill shot. But it was, you know, news and, and, and it should not have been suppressed or rather it should have been dealt with the way we've been dealing with this kind of thing since the founding of the Republic, which is that if you don't think that if you think there's something fishy about the story, then write another story for another outlet explaining what you have a problem with it. But I didn't like the idea that a social media platform, which is supposed to be like the town square, was playing the role of a journalist or a publisher. That was the part of it that I was like, this is we're crossing a line and on principle i'm against it
2: yeah i mean i i'm i have a lot of I, I agree with much of what you just said and certainly kind of at the level of principle i affirm the same kind of ideals of of an open marketplace of ideas that that you right. do and so it it did confuse me rub me the wrong way but again like different aspects of it more so and less so than others Once about two weeks had gone by and we started to hear, you know, it became clear, you know, not only what was in the piece in the post, the reasoning, it seemed, behind the ban, I started to get more uncomfortable with it. And, and, you know, ever since then, I've thought, well, this seems like it went too far. This shouldn't have happened.
0: And and Jack Dorsey. And that's the other interesting thing is that Jack Dorsey apologized for said it was a mistake. I was like, oh, that's interesting. But then we got this amazing thing in the, in the in the Twitter files in in the in the reported tweet thread that he was on. I mean, this was going on under him at Twitter, which is like, it, you know, he was sort of, I don't know, iced out or something.
2: Well, that's not always I mean, that's not that surprising, I think, in in, you know, knowing something about the way corporations, big companies tend to function. It's not that unusual for, like, you know, the head guy to sort of not be privy to even relatively big policy-oriented right. stuff in the company because they're supposed to be kind of looking at the horizon, the big business picture, and guiding the company at that almost meta level. But given the in- incredible stakes of this issue, that it involved a presidential campaign and you know, the right and especially Trump, you know, tweeting about it himself all the time about this great egregious, you know, transgression of norms. You'd think that, you know, within a couple of days he would have been looped in or just if he's looking at Twitter, <laughs> he would see it being talked about on the his own platform.
0: Yeah. And so, he was, I don't know. I mean, that was, that was interesting. Now I want to, but I want to kind of just peel back a little bit on this immediate issue, because that's the first... We, we, we got the laptop story first. Okay. But, like, what happened to... There's, there's, an, there's so many interesting threads behind it, and that's what I wanted to explore with you, which is that, first of all, there's been a lot of pressure since 2016 on the social media platforms to do the thing that I was so uncomfortable with them doing, which is to moderate more content, to be more vigilant against disinformation. And it's almost like... And and there's an industry, it's like an academic field now that exists that deals with online disinformation and misinformation. And they're, you know, it's affected government. They're, they're all kinds of, it's a huge, like, network and they're journalists who cover all this stuff. And as somebody who is not in that world, I want to say to them, do you, like, understand the inherent problem of, like, choosing what is information and what is disinformation in real time and how this is, you're inevitably setting yourself up to make this. I mean, the reason why a marketplace of ideas or a free speech model is attractive is not just because it's nice for everybody to have the right to say what it's because it, we, 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 we avoid this problem of a nomenclatura or like a kind of body that then, you know, sifts through all of the information to see what is suitable for the public and that the way that we handle that traditionally is that we have newspapers and magazines and networks and they are private ent- entities and they make those decisions on their own and you can get a second opinion if you'd like and it's almost like this whole industry is is unaware of any of this or this dilemma am i am i am i missing something or is that i mean what do you think
2: no, I, I, I largely agree with you. My, I mean, I don't believe that there's any such thing as say a totally open, it's not like Twitter is just a giant billboard for the whole world. And of course. Anybody and, can, and, like, and, like, and, and we, we anyone should get into that. There's like anything.
0: legitimate content moderation, of course, which we can talk right. about, but I'm talking so about this stuff that that's, gets beyond simply like, we don't want kitty porn. We don't want doxing. We don't want incitement to violence. I mean, those are things that are illegal. They're not protected speech anyway. Right. You know. No,
2: that's right. So what we're really debating is where, like, how broad of a spectrum of debate should be allowed to just happen and sort of sort itself out through the argument and debate about information. So how do you determine what's misinformation or disinformation? The only reliable way of doing it is through allowing people to argue about what is asserted to be true. And you have to assume if you are in favor of a liberal society that you're going to you're going to grope your way toward a conclusion at the end of that process of kind of open source testing. Right. It's Kind of a Hayekian vision of an open information space. And in general, I'm very open to that. But I do think. That our moment presents a real danger and problem with this model. And maybe we can loop back to that because I do want to distinguish also between what was going on in the Hunter Biden laptop case. That was a case of if that was going to be banned, then the margins are really narrow because this isn't this isn't like what I want to get to in a little bit in talking about Elon Musk and his potential vision for this. You know, he's doing things like letting, you know, outright Nazis back on the platform just just earlier today. Tuesday, I see Bronze Age pervert is back after having been banned. Who is Bronze That's, Age pervert? I forget his real name. He's a, a Roma- Romanian-American who is is a PhD from Yale in political theory and I think traffics in 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 true fascist ideology now you could say maybe it's okay you know we need to have the the hayekian information space you know prove that that's wrong but
0: uh, yeah i'm inclined the, the, to think that yeah
2: well maybe i mean that i mean we can talk about that aspect of it now too and you can decide what we okay. look back to later but one danger about some of these more extreme people on the platform who make arguments that are based very much in passion and emotion and often bigotry, is that, especially in ideological terms, someone like this guy, the Bronze Age pervert, who wrote a book called uh, I forget what the it's Bronze Age mindset, I think is the name, but <clears throat> is that the, the so he's network? of
0: endorsing like a Syrian? like ancient Assyrian governance of like mountains of skulls not for exactly. or something. Is that like, okay. no, well,
2: not Sorry. exactly, but it's very, it's very Nietzschean, very much like he, he refers to large segments of humanity as bug men who are like insects. All right. And, yeah. you sound like a jerk.
0: Of, <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: that's for sure. But I mean we're talking the problem is network effects and the fact that these open open social media platforms allow people with really fringe ideological commitments to find each other and form what James Madison called political factions
0: sure not
2: in real space like out in the country so like Here in the Philadelphia suburbs, where I'm speaking to you from, like, I could form a faction by actually finding other human beings in my area. And we have similar interests because of where we live and where we work and our class economically. And we form maybe a party or a faction within one of the two major American parties. That's politics, according to James Madison. And I largely affirm that view is accurate of the way we do things in a democracy. The problem is that with social media, if I'm a a member of the KKK or neo-Nazi, and how many of those people are there in my neighborhood here? Very, very few. Hard to find them. But now, because of the Internet, because of social networking, I can find the, say... 50,000 people most like that everywhere in America, and now we can form a virtual faction in virtual space and organize politically in a way that's far more effective than would have been possible, say, in, you know, Indiana in 1920 if I were in the Klan. So, and that, I worry that Musk's moving of the margins out, you know, Retweeting Pepe the Frog memes for the far right, letting on Andrew Anglin, who was who was kicked off the platform in 2015 pre Trump, so this isn't kind of like post Trump disinformation mania. So that's that's one concern. But, uh, but to loop back to to Hunter and the Hunter Biden laptop story, that's a that's that's not what I'm talking about. That's uh, you know you can obviously the New York Post is is a Murdoch vehicle. It's very conservative. It's a tabloid, but it is a news organization. And the idea that that now Twitter is going to be in the business of being basically a meta editor. So the right. New York Post has its own editors to decide what to put in its pages. But now Twitter is going to be on top of that and assess whether it will publish the story that the Post already published is turning Twitter into the equivalent of a gigantic magazine. Yes. <laughs> and and then who are the editors of this
0: magazine? And that's it, it's, the other thing. And these, and there, yeah. That's why I like the Twitter Files project, because we finally get a, a peek into who the editors were and what what they were thinking. And to me, that's an important Piece of it, but I want to get back to what you were talking about before, which is a really important and nuanced point. Which is one of the reasons I love reading you, is that you're not a, a kind of you, you're not a, a reflex thinker. You know what I mean? You're you you you, and you are steeped in a lot of. I mean, you have a PhD, so you you know a lot of this stuff in a deep level, and
1: well, that thanks. is
0: the sort of network effect thing. And here's my question: All right, let's say you're right, and that there's going to be certain kinds of ideas that are so toxic that we ban them from the open platforms like Twitter or Facebook or something like that. But we know that it doesn't mean that these people are not going to find each other. It just means we're going to find each other. And you might say in, in, in like the dirty sewer of the internet, like 8chan or 4chan or mm-hmm. Gab or some other thing. And my point, so I, I think it's inevitable in a networked world that you're going to have haters and dirtbags and conspiracy theorists and all kinds of other people are going to find them all they're going to find themselves on the internet somewhere they're just gonna it's gonna happen and i don't know i mean is it better that they are allowed to have their virtual communities undisturbed on a network that hosts you know like utter you know the worst of the worst or is it better that they would they can maybe find each other but they're going to be exposed to a lot of other Americans who find their views horrific and also it's going to give us those of us who you know the the majority of people who do not subscribe to these toxic ideas some situational awareness as to like you know what these these guys are up to
2: well i mean that's a good argument and my my case against it would be that you have to include an awareness or a concern about the viral potential also in addition to the network effects so if if these people hang out in 4chan or 8chan yeah they'll find each other and they'll have their group and that speaks to the network effect point that i made earlier and that's not right. great but they're pretty much only going to be heard by each other. They don't have the opportunity in that kind of a forum to kind of make converts to the cause because the only people who are in that room with them are people who sought it out in the first place. Whereas if it's on Twitter or... You know, you have different versions of this, say, on YouTube, where, like, one video you watch leads you to another, and then they can get more extreme as you go along. But let's stick to, to the Twitter phenomenon of it. On Twitter, you have this huge mass audience of people all over the spectrum who believe all kinds of things. You you they, they don't necessarily all interact with each other. No, but I think you have a potentially,
0: you could potentially. Yeah, yeah potentially exactly. you huge. Can, you can hit pay dirt, right?
2: Right. So like, for instance, I, you know, one example from my own experience, like Darren Beatty, who worked for Trump and was fired because he had gone to a, some kind of a gathering where there were there were people from V-Dare and so forth. And he's so he's pretty far right. He's another Ph.D. He instead of from you know, Bronze Age pervert, got his Ph.D. at Yale. Beatty got his at Duke. Uh, Also in political philosophy, I've written about this strange back-channel world between the alt-right and political theory in a way that I find disturbing because that's what I studied, too. But, you know, he and I occasionally do battle on Twitter a little bit. And, like, you'd like to think if we're, like, good million liberals that, like, you know, I would love this. I'm going to do battle with the alt-right guy and show all the people watching that he's wrong and I'm right. But the the way he typically will engage with me is I say a point in response to something he's asserted, and his response will be, that's exactly what I'd expect from a low-status individual like you, Damon. You're not fit to lick my shoes. And then he right. gets a hundred people going. Yeah, you showed him, and so nothing positive has come out of that exchange whatsoever, except that he maybe has gotten a few people who've never seen anyone react like that on Twitter. He didn't just say "f you" like a lot of people do, and you know, in your reply, guys on twitter he actually like does respond but it's a specific kind of insult that presupposes a kind of rank hierarchy it attempts to dishonor my status and even calls me low status and there are people who will see that and be titillated by this you know, masculine display of brav brío <laughs> against his opponent that actually had no substantive com- content to it at all, and so if you multiply that by thousands of alt right alt-right type guys, it can act, I fear, as a kind of conversion mechanism to pr- to create more and more people on the further fringes. So I, I worry about that. And and it doesn't get us away from the meta editor problem because you do need people to make those judgment calls. It's just that I would say that in my in my ideal world we would draw them as wide as possible and not not exclude very many. And we certainly would not exclude a mainstream conservative newspaper and its story. Because that, then, that that's different. I mean, my version is kind of a policed bulletin board, so it is, in a way, a vision of a giant bulletin board for everybody, but it's one where there are monitors that take down some of the more extreme examples. The well, other I version, think if you incite
0: and, violence, if you dock somebody, I mean, there's a lot of things that I would say fall under totally legitimate content moderation that you need to do in order to kind of keep the site go i mean it's like it's not a it's i think it's a straw man when 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 some people say well elon musk is gonna find that he's gonna have to come up with i mean of course you're gonna have to i mean everybody i mean anybody who's given it a little bit of thought understands that there's going to have to be some content moderation i just go back to this problem of and i hate slippery slope arguments but it's not really hypothetical you have people who sincerely believed that what the new york post was doing was it Advancing the aims of fascism. I mean, I'm just saying that there was, there is such hyperbole on the other side, on the left, that for you know other reasons, which I think are mainly to, I don't know, because it it, it advantages them in political discourse, have sought to anathematize anybody on the right, and to refer to them as you are now alt right, you're now fascist. I mean, it's it's like I get called a Nazi when I say. You need to separate the art from the artist with Kanye West or something, which is, you know what I'm, I mean? It's like it's right. this, it's this now. Yeah, sure. I don't. And by it's the way, I, I'm happy to take the slings and arrows. I'm not complaining about it in the sense of I I'm not saying that I you need to be protected. I'm not saying that <laughs> yeah. I'm saying that if you have lots of people on the other side who are a, closer to this kind of power in the social media companies or for that matter, political parties that are pressuring social media companies, which has happened for the last five or six years on this, and they can't make distinguished di- distinctions that you, I trust you to make, then even if, then, then, then I don't know how we get that. I, I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know how we can have that. You know, I would allow a lot of discourse, but some of these guys are too much. I I mean, if only, you know what I'm saying? I just, I, I just feel like it, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile on this.
2: Yeah, I, I, sh- I share your concern. It it doesn't remove the problem and the need to address it, but I, I remain, as you seem to be, pretty flummoxed about exactly how this could possibly work. Because the whole move toward, again, I don't know, it's sometimes called misinformation, sometimes disinformation, but the whole. The well, whole I love misinformation um, kind of because misinformation edifice.
0: is true. But 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 the context is wrong. I'm mean, like, oh, it's no, it's I mean, this goes malinformation is another I, one.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the the liberal kind of pugnacious liberal writer, Eric Alterman, wrote a book about 20 or even maybe even more years ago, just about you know, when presidents lie and then right. has written about media in these terms. And this i see as a kind of early version of this like the, the 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 view on the the left progressive left that if you disagree with me and you're not a progressive then you must be lying like this is based on a lie not based on a good faith disagreement about the facts and their meaning and the moral content that goes along with them that we have to hash out in a free society because Epistemologically and experientially, we see the world in different ways. And we're going to, you, you could have an endless debate among everyone in good faith, and you probably would not get total consensus on this. We would disagree. And that's okay, But there is a tendency on, you know, among some on the left to presume that if we had free and open good faith debate, we would all agree everyone would be progressives. Well, how could you not agree?
0: So I'm glad you brought this up because this gets at something. Whereas 20 years ago, we both ran into this in journalism and so forth, and it was annoying. It was like, oh, man, that's annoying. I wish you. I wish you. I wish you. I wish this wasn't. But it was fine because there. It was like it was before. You had the power of constant of these concentrated social media companies and so forth. But now it's a really dangerous idea because there's a whole industry of these disinformation specialists. There are journalists like MSNBC's Ben Collins who are just disinformation reporters, and it seems like it's it's and there's. there's no self-awareness among the people in who were who were in charge of Twitter's online safety and all these other orwellian terms which make my skin crawl that nobody has a monopoly on the truth and that you that this makes us dumber and that if you want to talk about disinformation there's a lot of disinformation that has been put out into the internet in the name of combating disinformation such as the notion that the Hunter Biden laptop was part of a russian disinformation operation which it wasn't but that was what we were told and it was amplified over and again right before the election again i am not arguing that, right and, the, like, and there, that there wasn't that, and and that right.
2: was yeah and that wasn't done by just some ra- random twitter rando that no was, it was, that by, was actually said by major national security specialists over and, said it on and over
0: again and it was like and like there was and the fact that there's no self-awareness on it this does not lead me by the way to the and we should say this and i i know where you are on this trump the other day said let's suspend the constitution because of what we've learned about the twitter files that is ridiculous and sinister and horrendous and it's absolutely crazy and terrible and there are there's another softer version of the argument that i've seen where people are like well if none of this had been done to the Hunter Biden story, Trump would have won the election. You don't know that. I don't know that. That's a dumb, like that's no, I'm not arguing that. Let's let's like, but I I do think that the people who are constantly worried about disinformation don't are unaware of how much they can then broadcast disinformation themselves. And it would be funny if we weren't, if it wasn't so real, you know what I mean? Like,
2: yeah, well I mean it's one weird thing about our moment and like we'll define our moment as beginning in say you know late twenty fifteen when Trump yeah, surged right. to that, the head. That, that's like, right. That, that's exactly From right. that yeah. point on, we entered a weird hall of mirrors context where politics is is always operating on two levels. Now, there's a way in which maybe this is always true because courts sort of do that, too. You know, you have Mm -hmm. judicial review. So that's like you're Republicans, you appoint conservatives to the court so that they'll then rule on the laws that you pass on the first level. So there's the second order. But, like, this is a kind of epistemological second-order politics where politics is both debates, say, in Congress over whether, you know, Biden can pass his big climate change bill or not, and, and that's that's a first order debate. But then you have the media is engaging in this other meta debate, which is about the it's about basically media criticism, like the means of information control that will shape that first order political debate. And so there's always this attempt to kind of do an end run and run around politics by doing this other kind of political ish thing, which is like I'm a progressive, hypothetically speaking. And I'm afraid that if Republicans say these arguments against the climate bill that I think is essential to save the planet, that the bill will fail and saving the planet is so important that what I should do is actually talk about how what they're saying is disinformation. So you delegitimize the other side's message and claim that it's somehow it's either a lie or it's being controlled by some deus ex machina somewhere, Putin or some other nefarious force out there, Tucker Carlson, whoever it is. And that delegitimizes the, the, the information and then you can then exclude it from debate. Which then, of course, if you could do that, would get, mean that the only people making arguments about the climate bill are the people who favor the climate bill. And so therefore the climate bill will win. So that's like, again, like it's like doing second order politics in order to gain advantage in first order politics and both sides do that to some extent there i mean well, the, the right well but it
0: seems like the left though has in built-in advantages in ways that the Because right of really the
2: institutional does. cultural institutions well yeah and i'm not this have... is not
0: an excuse but i do want to kind of get, get to something else here which is related to this and i'd on well, just the way you described it is exactly right i think which is that it's like there there's the politics and then there's the <laughs> meta politics about what you should be allowed to say about something yeah. and like the problem that i have or one of the concerns that i have is that on the one hand i don't want to give the right a slack in you know like if there are lots of people on the right who still think that the 2020 election was stolen and that's a terrible thing i blame president the ex-president trump for that and i think there's a lot of people who have enabled it by you know giving all kinds of excuse like giving all kinds of you know weak arguments to support a a very toxic lie that's very bad so i wanted to say that full stop on the but at the same time if you're on the right and you've heard for two and a half years that the president and his inner circle were compromised by russia and then nothing comes out of it and then you learn at from you know, the inspector general of the Justice Department and, you know, coming out after this, that the FBI was taking every imaginable shortcut in this investigation and that they had known because that all these other investigative leads, you know, had not had they 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 could rule them out pretty much by the end of 2016, early 2017 And if you spend there's you can understand why somebody could be red pilled in a situation like that, saying, why should I believe any of these institutions? And then the effect is that you have all these like, you know, high minded conferences at Aspen and the Wilson Center and all these places saying, what do we do to restore trust in government? All these conservatives don't trust these institutions anymore. And it's really bad for the country. And I'm like, look in the damn mirror. okay?" so I don't want to get Trump off the hook or the right off the hook for this stuff. I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying part of this is that you are almost like you're making it easy for millions of Americans to just dismiss anything that these institutions say when these institutions themselves engage in what I think are deceptions and shortcuts, you know, because they think they sort of know better. It gets almost to that problem Leo Strauss talked about, which I'm sure you're aware of, of this noble lie, and that ultimately it becomes a problem. Because if you get caught in a noble lie, you know even if you had the best of intentions, you lose credibility. And I don't—I right. I struggle with how to sort that out. I'd love to hear how you approach this issue.
2: Yeah, I mean, speaking of noble lies, I was going to transition to Fauci because yeah, well, there's he another actually one. Exactly. said, right? Yeah, he actually said, like, I—he didn't use the term, I don't think, but he effectively said. Yeah. You know, when it comes to public health messaging, you got to just sort of sometimes stretch the truth because that's all people are going to understand, which is a version of justifying the noble lie. So, I mean, I, I, I share your concerns about a lot of that stuff. I, uh, you know, I was, I was writing three columns a week for the week through the whole Trump administration. And so I rode the waves yeah. of Russia story. So like, Oh my god, how bad could this be? You know, I read Josh Marshall back then and Josh Marshall's like, act, you know, p- putting all the dots together about putting all the dots together about, about yeah. by the way, he know, doesn't like give an inch person. today.
0: He doesn't give an inch on it.
2: No, he doesn't. He still thinks it's all true and that you know, I guess it'll all get revealed in the end times. I don't know, but you know, so I wrote that for a while and and thought it could be true. Wrote a few columns. I'm glad that I never like wrote a column where I fully took the deep dive into that stuff. But, but then I you know had myself disabused. So I know how absurd so many much of it turned out to be. the The complication when dealing with that is, of course, that whole that whole area of of of, of the story of the Trump years. Is that Trump and his whole entourage were really pretty bad guys? They are corrupt, and they did have weird ties to Eastern Europe and Ukraine and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, no, that I'm, that sure. looks dirty. And so, if they actually were completely innocent of doing anything nefarious, it would be easy to just dismiss it. But it's always so muddied that there's always there are always kind of you know cracks in which. The other side can then say, "Like, oh, look, that's evidence of this bigger thing." So it's a kind of fog of conspiracies on both sides, okay, but I, which can I really. Just, I but, just, but 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 yeah, I, I did. I actually wanted to, because of that murkiness, I wanted to point briefly to the COVID situation, because that actually is a situation, like, I'm not sure what, say, the Twitter censorship question, how that relates to the Russia business with Well, I can, Trump. Get, I
0: can get to that in a second, yeah, but... Okay, right, but can,
2: yeah. yeah, go back to that after, but the, the issue about COVID and, you know, whether people should be banned for questioning the efficacy of vaccines and so forth, that's an area where I think probably, you know, Musk is right to say those yeah. people can come back, because... You know, I, I, I'm not as harsh on Fauci as a lot of people. I'm fully vaxxed. I will keep taking these boosters that don't do as much as we wished they did. But you know, it, I, on my views on that whole that whole episode of the pandemic and the boosters, the the the, the vaccines, the the anti-vax hysteria on the right. But then also the kind of left wing kind of lockdown fetish that that you know continues to hold among some people in blue states. I just think that the there the the record is so murky. The authorities and the public health bureaucracies so did so many face plants, so many exaggerations. Yeah. So I think we that's a great example of a case where the seemingly absurd crazy outlier position on what what appears to be an absurd position and even dangerous in terms of public health on one day 3 months later can become the conventional wisdom and the old, that's where we need the hayekian information space to allow the people who sound like nutballs to like put their theory forward and have it be looked at and investigated And that, I mean, there are reasons why sometimes the nutcases on Twitter were more right than Fauci in the end, whether it's about masks or or various treatment regimens for different things. So, you know, I, I, I do think that's a good example of where like Musk's instincts to kind of draw the margins wider, to let... The kooks in on the margins, even if some of them will spread bad stuff, in the end, the net result, I think, could be a positive a
0: gain. Okay, I want to touch on a couple of things really quick, because it gets to some of this stuff that has been bugaboos, I think, of both of us here. I want to read you a quote. This was in the Washington Post, and it is, I don't know if you, I mean, do you know Juliet Kayyem? She's a uh, former, she's I, like a former department of homeland security assistant secretary she's a professor now at harvard she's like one of these I've, di- I've
2: seen her name around but she's i don't know. She's one of I these people in the, in the
0: like disin- disinformation expertise okay okay and what she said last week in the washington post is the idea that there's a difference between online chatter and real world harm is disabused by a decade of research now i am very troubled that one of our thought leaders is saying this so blithely because if we accept this principle that there's really no distinction between what we say online or what we, you know, and violence, well then, you know, all rules are gone. It's like, you know, well then all speech can at a certain level be moderated and regulated because if it's like physical violence, then that's why we have laws, right? I mean, it, it's a really bad idea, and I don't want to pick on her because lots of people will say this—that this that they that this that we have no we have this is why Dave Chappelle named one of his special sticks and stones because we've somehow forgotten this idea that there's a difference between what you can say and having a vigorous debate and violence itself. And I mean, I don't know, as an academic, does, does this go back 50 years? Do we have to go read our Gromsky or like, I don't know, Foucault or something? I mean, where does, where does this idea, where does this, terrible idea goes th- come from that i think is a threat to our democracy there i said it <laughs>
2: i i don't really know the the actual genealogy of this but clearly i mean it Have probably you noticed does it? oh of course yeah yeah, yeah yeah you see it all the time that like you know w- words are
0: violence right or like uh, it makes I mean, you listen, wonder yeah but then what's real violence <laughs> or like or just here's another it's like it's, listen I, I i'm i'm not a an extremist on trans issues. My my intention here is not to sing. But the idea that misgendering a trans person is the same as physical violence, which a lot of people have said, and by the way, I think part of the justification for a Twitter policy, I don't know if it's still a policy, of why they banned the Babylon Bee for giving Rachel Levine the Man of the Year award it's like you know we we run into it a lot and i just think that well i mean we, it's well, we got to push back and we,
2: we, yeah and we we agree on that and it's i mean my my attitude is especially if we're talking about twitter is yeah. if someone i mean my rule on twitter is if someone personally insults me i just block them and i yeah, and i right. and I, I don't need twitter to block them for me By banning them, I'll block them and it takes me like literally three seconds and it's actually kind of satisfying. I love doing that. Like going down, you know, click on it, scroll down, hit block this account. You block it, boom, they're gone. It's like you you banish them to outer darkness. I mean, that's it's it can be a pain in the ass. Like, you know, you and I were sort of debating the Hunter Biden laptop thing and the Twitter files yesterday, and there's still a, th- a thread between the two of us going with, like, hundreds of people. I yeah. think I've been very much ratioed by the right by now on that. Well, I've been and, ratioed. And
0: so, I mean, there have been people who've been ratioed me on the left, too, so we were both getting Yeah, it.
2: I know, I know, and yeah. I get ratioed on the left on other issues, yeah, so, like, right. it happens. But- and, and they can be just as nasty as the right, by the way. They do tend to be a little different. Have you noticed that? I, I find that for the left, it's almost always a moral critique that you're evil. And for the right, it's you're stupid. You're an idiot. So that that actually reveals something about, about the difference in the way the right and the left looks at disagreement and the, the sources of the disagreement. The right, I think, does tend to presume that if if you say something they think is wrong, that's because you're a fool. Whereas, for the right, if the left, if you're wrong, that means you're like morally defective in some way. But anyway, I, yeah. So I, I I don't want Twitter to protect me from just routine nastiness because they provide me with a means of protecting myself, and that's. And, and it is not the same to, you know, said sticks so and stones well. will yeah. not break my bones. They'll piss me off, but then I'll just block the person and go have a drink.
0: There is a so, lot of academic research, though. And I think that oh, that's yes, one part of what Juliette K M is saying is true, which is that there's say, said, <laughs> 10 years of research. But I actually believe there probably is 10 years of research which is dedicated to disproving a basic tenet of liberal democracy. Which right. really no, bothers can. me. It's like where where it's like I'm not one of these people like what is it Edie Hirsch or whoever like let's get back to the canon. Why aren't more kids reading Shakespeare? You know I'm not like it's not the hill I necessarily would die on, but at the same time, it does seem like when you add in, you know, at the college level, the high school level, more and more stuff that you have to read, and you as it at the expense of some of these basic ideas which I thought. If you, if we, I mean, I wouldn't, we wouldn't have this conversation, Damon, 10 years ago, because it would have been banal, right? Like everybody right. agreed, uh, yeah, we have to have free speech. You know, it's like, it's only in the last, I don't know, six or seven years where these have really come under a kind of attack and it's frustrating as hell. It's really,
2: it is. Yeah. I
0: mean, I, I mean, the, the one
2: of the key thinkers to try to think through both maybe why it's happened, but also its detrimental effects for on people psychologically is Jonathan Haidt. Oh, his, yeah, he's great. His work I agree. On, on all of this. So he's very good. But I mean, I would also you know, encourage people to take a historical long view on this. I mean, look at what, what John Adams and Thomas Jefferson said about each other when they were competing for the presidency in 1800. Over 200 years ago, Talk it was as nasty... Talk about disinformation. I know, complete... <laughs> utter like stick stones, you know, Molotov cocktails of rhetoric thrown at each other. And what we then ended up building in the 20th century is actually a kind of much comparatively much more staid consensus based centrist liberal public square where norms of propriety and decency and, and and gentlemanly rhetoric became the norm and that was lovely. I grew up at the tail end of that period and it's sort of what I assume it should be like and so I sense the coarsening and and the nastiness and we see we were able to see it much more frequently being nasty because of things like Twitter where we're interacting with like 200 strangers in a day some of whom are pretty pretty mean but if you put it in that broader perspective, you actually see that what we're doing is we're kind of reverting to what might be a longer standing American norm of freewheeling, out of control, public square democracy. And it's it can be raucous and and coarsening and unpleasant. But, you know, we're a huge 330 330 million people who are trying to figure out how we want to live together as a group. And that's going to be nasty business at times. The stakes are high and tempers are short. And, and that's, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, that's okay.
0: Well, and I would add to a corollary to that, which when I'm, when I, when I'm having discourse with my liberal and progressive friends, I would just say, you know, look up the story of Frank Kameny, the, the, the heroic kind of gay rights pioneer. The only weapon he had... Was free speech. He basically took on not just politics, he took on the entire culture at a time when people, you couldn't say homosexual on television or, you know, in respectable newspapers. It was only dealt with through euphemisms. And he said, gay is good, which today seems, again, like a banality. Like, okay, sure. But it's a remarkable thing. And the only way that he was able to kind of start the embers of a movement that made our country much better and much more equal and much more fair was through this notion of free speech and that you couldn't, and, and, and that's the part of it that I'm worried about. And I think it's more than a slippery slope. And that's to sort of, to close the loop here, I want to throw something at you and sort of see what you think of this, which is that the people who are afraid of the spread of disinformation talk about speech and ideas as if they were viruses or infections or something like that are displaying a combination of what I would call epistemological arrogance, which is to say that they know what's true and they, they don't need anybody. They never would test that. But also a kind of lack of epi- lack of confidence in that they're, they're afraid that anyone who gets exposed to the wrong thing could be lost forever. And, you know, that's why I in even though there are things about musk that frustrate me and i think he's made mistakes like this thing with the you can purchase your blue check terrible idea we've already seen that but i'm rooting for this to succeed because if it does succeed then we will have an actual example of a social media network that allows far more speech and even dangerous speech and we all survived does that make sense
2: yeah, it does. I still worry about what I talked about earlier about yeah, the fact no, no, that combining that's why I'm with so glad conversion.
0: Yeah. But
2: in general, at the level of principle and ideal, I think we're on the same page here. I do think that we need ideally we could have an open freewheeling forum for public debate in which we can kind of collectively make our way through the world while giving people, you know, the benefit of the doubt that they're capable of making decisions about what's right, wrong, good, and bad and, and true and false as well. I mean, I, one one thing that you said that I really liked that I've tried to make as a point on various occasions is this issue about a lack of confidence. Yeah, It is true. And you could accuse me of maybe saying it because of my fear of, you know, Nazis getting recruits online. But if you bracket that for a second, the general idea, like I think, a lot of what we've seen on the 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 left, basically center left, since say 2016, Hillary Clinton's defeat to Donald Trump, has been a function of a kind of shell shock on the center mm. left, of a, a fear that somehow we 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 can't win, right, fairly. right, it right, just right, doesn't right. like there's a lack of confidence that if you have an open marketplace of ideas that liberalism will actually be victorious that it actually might lose to illiberal currents if if maybe only conservative currents because you know on the left they they can't Get quite straight, you know what's fascism and what's kind of standard conservatism, and uh, there's some debate about that with constant overreaching and portraying people who are just merely conservative as being fascist. So you know, I do think that that a lot of the overreacting, the the knee jerk tendency to like say, you know, oh you said something mean about me, you're you know you're you you should be banned, you can't say that, I'm going to call the authorities and send you to detention. That f- follows, I think, a lot from a kind of insecurity that, like, we we can't win this if we just debate the right straight on. And not many people on the left will admit this, but I do think, psychologically speaking, it explains some of the kind of hysterical fear that you hear. It's It's that if you if you put donald trump and hillary clinton on a stage and we on the left watch that and are like of course hillary clinton won she's going to win 70 30 in this election on in november 2016 and then in a, and then actually Donald Trump is the winner? How could that possibly be? She was so obviously right. She was so obviously well, better. She I mean, was so obviously th- terrible. No, and, hold on, and so that yeah. is, a, yeah. So I, I, you're, get, I think I you're get exactly you, right You,
0: you hit on something. Do you think, I, it's a, you got to be very tricky and nuanced on this because, it's not tricky, but you have to be, there's a nuanced point to make, which is to say- What the Russians did in 2016 with the especially the hack of the DNC emails and then putting them online through WikiLeaks, but also the front DC leaks was was a was was a really bad bit of political warfare and dirty tricks that I, you know, that that we have to guard against. Okay, however, if you explain away the election as. She would have won had it not been for the Russian interference, then you are depriving yourself of the chance to reassess why your arguments were not persuasive. Why you of failed. Of course. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? So it's like a, on the... that
2: was a huge problem in the in right. the wake of that election. That like you had instead of Hillary Clinton leading a conversation about what maybe she should have done better to win and actually beat Trump in right. the electoral college, instead it became the, the the bastard Putin
0: stole the election from us, and 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 and, and, and Trump was in on it, which he wasn't. And I, but of course, gets, the, yeah. I
2: mean, this is also a function of how narrowly divided we are. Of course, right. the only reason that was a plausible argument, like that Comey threw the election because of the right. uh, you know because of the the laptop emails being released at the last minute from we Anthony Weiner's laptop, like. Like there, there are when the election is so close that the victor loses the popular vote sure. by two point nine million, you're gonna end up having basically any imagined change to the scenario could be the thing that would lead it to go the other way. Like all you need is eighty thousand votes in three states to go the other way and Trump loses.
0: So, but I'm just saying I um, think we're living like six seven years later with the, yeah, we are, with, but with, like it... that was the things that were done in 2016 after that election, where this—that's when the social media companies are like, "Oh my God, we have to think about disinformation in a serious way," and that's when know, but... the Democrats became obsessed with pressuring the social media companies and, in general, saying we have to be, you know, vigilant to make sure none of this gets out there, and you know, wow, all these American voters were tricked in Wisconsin and everything like that, as if, and that's the thing is like part of it, which is like. The emails that were released were true. Some of them were very damaging, and I grant that that did have an effect. But the idea that the memes that or the ads that were purchased by Russian fronts that in some cases had viewership in the in the maybe the triple digits, I don't know that that had any effect. I you know what I mean? And the amount of money they spent was nothing compared to what other people were spent. You know the major parties were. But it became a kind of focus and that that was the reason why, you know, we have to make sure it never happens again. And I feel like that's what started us down this path. Sure.
2: Yeah. I mean, and the the irony of all of this is that what you ended up with in 2020 with Trump refusing to accept the results and even foreshadowing that he wouldn't when he was asked by some reporters, like, will you accept the results? And he says, we'll see. And then, of course, he doesn't. What you end up with is that the Republicans then kind of reproduced the same dynamic in a slightly different way after 2020, where both parties are telling their voters, the only reason we didn't win is that something was rigged. There was there was something behind the vote. And if only we could make the process fair, we would, of
0: course, be the victors. Except but there's, that, there's, a huge, there's a big difference, though, Damon. And that is that the Republicans had no element of... Permanent Washington that was willing to stoke the embers of this, like giving it any legitimacy. that the Well, election that might be true. And but that you, is, you true. did I mean, like, have the mail.
2: president himself from. Oh no, from no, no! The, the Oval president Office, absolutely.
0: That makes what Trump did worse than. I'm not. That's why you can't compare Trump to Hill. But I'm saying, on the other hand, you did not have a situation where Merrick Garland had to recuse himself from an investigation into what really happened in 2020 election, which is what happened in 2016. So it's like yes, of
2: course, because it's because the you know I don't want to call it the deep state, just say permanent Washington, permanent permanent Washington, the the bureaucrats (laughs) who stay on from administration to administration. A lot of those people simply thought Trump was bad news, and you know, good instincts, but they you know that's one thing if they vote the other way it's another thing to actually try to gum up the works and go on msnbc yep. and and speak as if you know things you don't in order to create a story About how he stole the election. He's with Putin. He deserves to be locked up in all of the stuff that was going on, which of course only plays into Trump's hands because then when it blows up, it undermines again the authority of of those institutions. That's what I mean. I'm
0: I'm not gonna give any, I don't cut any slack to citizens, members of Congress, or anybody who goes along with the 2020 election nonsense. But what I'm saying is that at the, I can also hold that view with that. Like that's just despicable, full stop. On the other hand, do I, can I understand why somebody might find themselves in a situation? Well, I don't believe anything that, I, you know, that, that these so-called neutral people, they, they, they're not neutrals. The media isn't the neutrals. FBI isn't neutral. You know what I'm saying? And that like, Hey, I, I don't, I'm not there, but I understand how you got there is what I guess. I'm saying.
2: Well, that's what's so dangerous. I think of like Trump's, and, and not just Trump, but a lot of people on the right who who might end up in any future DeSantis administration or any other Republican who wins talking about things like getting rid of, you know, nonpartisan civil service employees in the federal government. Because if the further you go down from appointed heads at the top, the kind of, you know, like the, the agency head and like the, the two down that typically switch over with the appointment of the new president. If you actually go further down into these bureaucracies and make them all kind of partisan actors who are loyal to the president personally yeah,
0: that's, that's a terrible
2: then idea. then all of those people are going to shift every time there's a change of a president and that will just degrade the trust in these institutions even more. so then it'll just be automatically assumed you can't trust the justice department of the other party you can't trust the defense department of another party yeah. or the cia of another party that that is incredibly dangerous so you know i i would i would speak out pretty strongly against that if it actually comes well
0: close but to that's that. why i mean i would like i would have liked to, we're not going to get it I, that's why i wanted to see some accountability of the old regime on top of the fbi and some of the people in the justice department like for me i just think that To take one example, Andrew Weissman, who was one of the deputies to Robert Mueller, who reveals himself every time he's on MSNBC to be a rabid partisan, is doing us no favors by continuing to feed his own ego and to be this kind of resistance hero. Because, you know, it's just a constant reminder that the people who were investigating Trump for, you know, the first half of his administration were, you know, Democratic partisans. I mean, and that's the and then you know that's the part of it that's so frustrating to me because I don't. I agree with you. We 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 have to have faith in these institutions, but it starts with a little accountability.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's it's a big problem. We we are living in an era where well, I mean, it's a version of what I said earlier about, about yeah. epistemology or knowledge that that a lot of people on the center left so. Collapse the distinction between, well, you could, one way to put it would be the distinction between law and politics, yep. or the distinction between the permanent career civil service and the appointees of a particular administration that turns yep. over when a new one is elected. So, what you end up with is uh, an assumption that somehow to work in the federal government is to be. A Democrat, a liberal Democrat, a progressive Democrat. And so, if you're not one of those, then somehow you're illegitimate in some way and you shouldn't be trusted. And then, and then the right does that and can actually point and say, look, that guy who was just on MSNBC is now prosec- you know, seeking to prosecute the Republican president. Why should we trust that? That's just, And then Trump is able to stand up and convincingly make the argument that this is just a witch hunt. They're coming to get me because they don't like that I'm your president, or that I'm a Republican, because they're liberals, they're Democrats. And that, you know— we could we could have a, a our own nuanced separate conversation about whether it is even possible to uphold politics and law and that distinction in the all nth degree. It probably breaks down eventually. But because you know, because someone appoints those people and those the people who appointed them were in a party. And so maybe ultimately you can't uphold it, but it should be something we aspire to do. We should try to do it. We should we should tell civil servants like Look, you want to serve your country? Don't go on MSNBC. Don't. You can't have a book deal for five years after you leave your position. Things like this. Or, like, or to tell good old fashioned,
0: boring, good government. In our world, to tell media companies, you know, that, you know, stop hiring, you know, former FBI and Justice Department people and then turning to them to be like as if they were neutral analysts when they weren't. And then, because it, you know, that it's, it, 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 Blurs the lines and invest right. more and money the in, in reporters. It
2: on, yeah, yeah, the left recognizes it on the right. If Bill Barr shows up on Fox, then they're like, oh, oh yeah, they take. Yeah, this but if Bill Barr was a paid,
0: gonna... if, if he was a paid analyst, the way that Andrew McCabe is, or you know, I mean, anyway. Yeah. But this, you, right. you've been so generous with your time. I want to just like give you the last word because you do write eyes on the right. It's a little bit off the topic of what we have, but I'm very curious as to what you say. Are we beginning to see a little bit of a renewal in the Republican Party now that we're seeing a few more, you know, Republicans kind of getting up and saying this is ridiculous, suspending the Constitution? Trump is not, you know, doesn't seem to have the, the power that he had before, maybe, am I wrong?
2: I'm trying to be agnostic on this question. I've been burned before. I remember Trump saying horrible things about John McCain early on in in his campaign in 2016. And then, of course, the Access Hollywood tape and on and on and on. And he always seems to immolate and seems to come back like, you know, eight times Jesus Christ resurrecting from the dead. So I don't know. It all comes down to, of course, the base, the voters. What are they going to do? I can believe that a lot of Republican pundits, people who, you know, are you know conservative devotees to the conservative movement who want to leave Trump behind. They recognize that although he's great at mobilizing the base, he's pretty bad at getting votes in the general election. So they have all kinds of, you know, self-interested reasons to want to leave him behind. But in the end, they only have the votes of their own votes. And when it comes to, like, most of the votes... Those are people who aren't going to defer to the pundits. And so I don't know yet if enough Republican voters are willing to leave Trump behind and and then not only leave him behind, but coalesce around an alternative. Of course, again, the... Professional Republicans and conservatives want DeSantis to be it. They're doing everything they can to make it so that people conclude, if not Trump, it has to be this guy to avoid the problem of 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 a million, you know, 17 candidates who can't get traction against the one guy from 2016. So we will see. But it's very, very early. I I, I am encouraged that Trump seems to have... <laughs> His aging process is manifesting itself we'll say in a slightly different way than Biden's is. <laughs> yeah. He's you know, he's he doesn't come off as being, you know, borderline senile as Biden sometimes sounds, but he he clearly has lost some of that charisma, that quick witted humor that he deployed to such great political effect when he first ran. So, you know, whether he can pull the magic out again, I don't know, but fingers are crossed.
0: Well, I like that's to say sure. if it's if it's Biden Trump again, and I so hope it isn't, it's frail and foggy versus fat and crazy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, but you must be. I mean, we we didn't talk about foreign policy at all, where we sometimes disagree. Yeah. But you must be very pleased with Biden for Ukraine. Uh, for Ukraine, no, no, no. I, for Ukraine,
0: absolutely, I am, and uh,
2: as I am, we're we're more, I think, on the same side.
0: Uh, that's right. You know, this was than, such than a we pleasant. Did conversation where we kind of largely agreed that yeah we i forgot that there was a time when you know, i think we were always respectful but we we really were coming from very different places on foreign policy part of that i think is reflecting the fact that i have become i'm still would call myself a hawk i guess but i've become much more concerned about some of these issues i mean i've as i've been writing a lot for commentary on the fbi i'm much more of a skeptic there So I think I've become, I don't know, maybe more libertarian as I've aged (laughs) on some of these things. Oh, give you a
2: a guest spot at the Quincy Institute. No, 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 no.
0: (laughs) No, It's a difference between libertarianism and then appeasement. So,
2: (laughs) yeah, no, I I mean, it all for me, it all comes down to I just I did not agree with how we fought the war on terror. And so the wars that were connected to that it was very skeptical of, but I'm an old Cold Warrior and was I was on board with our approach on Ukraine from the beginning and I'm very concerned about China. Well so, I think yeah and that we um, agree.
0: I mean and I think I agree I mean it's not like I was enthusiastic on the war on terror. We're over time here, but you know, I do think that I that I I gotta say I am I should have been more horrified by the treatment of just Muslim American citizens. The domestic side of it is the part of it that I think is really, anyway. But let me yeah. thank you, uh, Damon Linker. This was a lo- this was a long conversation, but I think well worth it. And thanks so much for coming on. This was a great conversation. I learned a lot. And I, yeah, I, thanks
2: I was, for I, having me. I hope you will have me back yeah, when the when the time is sure. time and topic are right.
0: Yeah, this was great. This has been the reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.